everyone. Welcome to a special episode of the EITF project. We've been loving your responses for season one, and Karthik and I are in the midst of filming season two. But while we're filming season two, we, we figured that we have an important topic to address for this special episode. What we noticed is when we started season one of the EITF project, we were in the great resignation where people were quitting their existing jobs and finding new ones to satisfy their career needs. But tech industry has taken a downturn right now and has done a full 180. And we're seeing a lot of people being affected by layoffs. And we are seeing a lot of companies tightening their purse strings owing to the recession that the country is heading into. And I'm talking about the United States here. So one section of the population that's highly affected by the layoffs are the immigrants that have come to the U.S. on visas to work for certain companies. The folks that are affected by these layoffs are trying to find different options for their visas to be able to stay in the country and not have to uproot their lives to move away from the country and to start new. So what better person to talk to than an immigration lawyer? So in the following interview, we've spoken about H-1 visas. We've spoken about the grace periods that are available for H-1 visas. We've also spoken about the transition between H-1 and O-1 visas. We've spoken about the transition between H-1 and day one CPT. Is day one CPT legal? What are the different types of universities that offer day one CPT? Is it a gray area? Is it an option that folks can take? We've also spoken about the insane visa stamping wait times in certain countries, especially India. So all of these different topics and more covered in the upcoming interview, and we would love to hear your feedback. So on to the introduction of the immigration lawyer that I just spoke about. Manjunath Gokare is the founder of Gokare Law Firm. Gokare Law Firm is a premier metro Atlanta-based law firm that has been providing its clients with outstanding legal solutions since 1999 in all facets of U.S. business immigration law. They also have an office in Bangalore, India. Gokre LPO in India has been in business for seven years since January 1st, 2016. GLF has built a reputation for quality and as a firm that is cost conscious with a can-do attitude. GLF and Gokuri LPO can assist you in the following areas. All facets of U.S. business immigration law, U.S. visa and consular assistance services in India. Manjunath has built GLF into a premier law firm that is well respected for the quality of its work by clients as well as peers. Manjunath is an active member of American Immigration Lawyers Association and he has served in leadership roles at AILA for nearly a decade in the past. He was the chair of AILA's Liaison Committee to California Service Center and also vice chair of Texas Service Center Committee. Manjunath has served on AILA's L1 Task Force, BSC Committee, and Ombudsman Committee. Manjunath is extremely active on LinkedIn and Google, and he's constantly sharing his knowledge and expertise with the community via social media. He's engaged and active within the local community and also serves on various civic boards. We are extremely happy to have Manjunath with us on the EITF project. So let's continue on to the interview. Welcome to the EITF show, uh, Manjunath. Thank you, Karthik. I'm uh, glad to be on this panel. Fantastic. 
So let's get started. I think burning question, what would you advise an immigrant on H-1B or an L-1 visa who is currently facing turmoil in the country uh, with regards to recession? What would be your words of comfort uh, for someone who's in the situation now? So uh, Karthik, uh, thank you once again for the opportunity. Um, this is a very timely topic. As you know, there are a lot of layoffs in the tech industry. Um, we've all heard of layoffs at Meta. We also have heard of layoffs at Google. And uh, obviously Twitter is in the news and um, they are laying off a bunch of people. So it's um, all around. And uh, what we have seen is uh, through COVID, there was an increase in hiring and um, Suddenly now um, with, uh, with the way the economy is, all these companies are bloated and they're looking to, for ways to trim their workforce. So it's a, sort of a, um, a natural cycle, if you will. We have gone through these kinds of ups and downs over the last 30 years many times. It's unfortunate when it happens, uh, but these things do happen. But with any, particularly with respect to the tech industry, the impact is significant on people who are visa holders, you know, pe people who are in this country on H-1B and other kinds of visas. So if you're a U.S. citizen or a green card holder, obviously you have more options, right? So if you're laid off, you can certainly claim unemployment. You can be here with your family and you can look for another job. Um, not a problem. Whereas if you're on an H-1B, the challenges start from day one. So obviously once you're laid off, you have to find another job within a certain length of time or you have to leave. And, um, you know, most uh, people, uh, like we were discussing before we started this call, people have children who are born here and, you know, maybe they're going to school, they've bought a house, they've bought a car and stuff like that. So it's not really easy to just pick up and leave. So people have to uh, find other opportunities in the U.S. Uh, my word um, of, uh, you know, advice would be for people to be patient and um, network. You know, this is uh, my constant message. I mean, you, you never know uh, what doors open for you. There's not legal advice. This is really just practical advice. Talk to your friends, talk to your peers, network well, you know, and if you knock on 10 doors, one door may open up. So don't give up hope. There's always something which comes along. Just hope for the best. And so in this context, uh, we have posted on LinkedIn and, you know, people have responded well to our messages on LinkedIn, posts on LinkedIn. You know, keep in mind there is a 60-day grace period in the law when it comes to H-1B transfers. Um, so if you have a valid I-94, which extends beyond 60 days and you lost your job today, you don't have to have a job tomorrow or day after. You have 60 days to find your next job. So take advantage of that. And if your spouse is on an H-1B and he or she does not uh, does have a job, look at change of status to an H-4 uh, as a way to uh, maintain your status in this country. I think the question I had was, you said the 60-day grace period. So I hear Facebook and Amazon all giving uh, severances. So uh, for like a month and a half and all of that. So does the 60-day grace period start the day you got laid off or the day your severance ends? Because I see that question being asked a lot on LinkedIn. Yeah. So you have to assume it's from the date of your last day of your employment. So severance uh, paychecks will say severance. And also most of these um, uh, these big companies will notify USCIS 
as soon as they lay you off. Their immigration teams will send out a request for withdrawal, revocation of the H-1B to the USCIS, you know, on or after the last day of your employment. So you have to assume it's from the last day of your employment, which is the proper assumption, and don't rely on a pay stub which may come for another six weeks. Uh, that's um, foolhardy. That's a wrong assumption. Actually, this leads me into my next question. This is a good segue, I think. You know, this is the, I would say, it's a very inconvenient time um, I mean, everything is crashing and burning, so as to say, in the tech industry, and there's a recession happening. But it is a very inconvenient time to get laid off because we are in the holiday period. And a lot of companies, even even if they are hiring, the interview process during the holiday period is pretty slow. So one of the things I want to ask is, is there anything that someone who got data off, say, can do to stay in the country longer in terms of communicating with their employer. Um, I did see on LinkedIn a few people suggest, suggesting that, you know, give me my severance as a proper paycheck um, for the next couple of months so I can stay in the country for longer, things like that. Are those legit ways to stay? And is that something that they can bring up in conversation with their employer? Nandini, good question. If the... Um date of the termination of employment itself gets postponed by four to six weeks for the length of the severance, then you can act as if the the last date of employment was six weeks down the road. But if the employer just changes the severance pay to a regular pay, but they terminate you in their payroll anyway, or your employment with them on a particular date and notify the USCIS, USCIS has already been informed that you are no longer with the company as of, let's say, December 1. So you cannot really rely on those kinds of things. So the, the proper uh, assumption here is, hey, I have 60 days from the last date of employment when the employer has notified me and the USCIS uh, and then work uh, to find another position in those 60 days. And if for some reason, I would keep looking. Uh, so in that in that 60 day window, but if you reach the 60 day mark or you're like one or two weeks away, and like I said earlier, if your spouse is on an H1B and you don't have um, another uh, position lined up and an H1B transfer petition filed by the new employer, then you should immediately file for a change of status. So that way, you're legally allowed to remain in this country. So move from an H-1B to an H-4, um, uh, you know, if that's possible, and then keep looking while this change of status is pending for another suitable job. And the moment you find another job, they, the employer will be able to file an, an H-1B and also request a change of status from this pending H-4 back to H-1B. And then once the case is approved, you can start employment. So obviously there'll be gaps in all of this, uh, right? Uh, given the multiple change of statuses in war, but that's what we have been suggesting to our clients. Yeah, actually that makes a lot of sense. I, and I think it's, especially if you have a spouse on H1B, I think it's a great way to move to H4 because you are also allowed to work on an H4 EAD right now, right? So you can continue employment. Um, but I do have, one more question. How long does it take for this change of status to happen? This is mostly for our viewers who are 
closer to that 60-day mark, when should they start planning for the change of status? So I would um, wait until like maybe one or two weeks before the 60-day ends. And then if you really, nothing has happened and you're like maybe two weeks away, I would at that point file a change of status to an H4 if that's an option. And the change of status is going to take some time. But that's okay. You're just parking yourself and you're legally allowed to remain here while the change of status is pending and you continue looking for suitable employment. And if something else comes along, you piggyback onto this pending change of status from H1B to H4 and ask USCIS to move you from H4 back to H1. So it's a serial adjudication. The USCIS may not have approved this change of status to H4. And now you're on top of that tacking on in, in H-1B petition, but uh, uh, it's done often. And um, there are ways uh, lawyers can inform the USCIS as to what has happened, you know, um, all the prior filings which are pending and the uh, cases can get handled seamlessly. But yeah, so to answer your question, Nandini, maybe a week or two before the 60-day grace period ends, I would look at filing the change of status to H-4. So, you know, you, you, you are assured that the change of status was received by the USCIS and you're, you're okay to continue legally staying in this country. Okay, so, yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. But I, I have one more follow-up question, I guess. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, one to two weeks prior is the best time to file for H-4. But are there any disadvantages, say, in, I mean, if you're left with no option, that's the best way to go, I guess. But are there any disadvantages in doing this change of status regularly, especially when you file for a green card? Not at all. So if you have a spouse on H-1B, you're legally allowed to remain in this country as a dependent of that spouse. Um, You're allowed to request H-4 and... um, so, uh, no, I, I see no downside to it, and I saw, I see no negative impact from these change of status filings when it comes to a green card filing down the road. No, but by all means, you should do it. So, let's take the example where a person does not have a spouse who's on H1 to become their dependent, right? Uh, they, don't get, they don't have the option to go on to a H4. I see a lot of people talk about going on to day one CPT, if that's an option. I see some talking about, hey, maybe going on to a visitor visa, like a B1 or a B2 that gives some six months in the country. Uh, I, I keep hearing a lot of mixed opinions about day one CPT as a whole and doing a second master's. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, is that advisable under the law of the land? And can people safely do a day one CPT here? Um, so those are all uh, plan B and C. So day one CPT, changing status to B2. Um, if you're or left with no other choices, I would certainly use those to your advantage. Some of these schools which offer day one CPT are not stellar schools, right? I mean, it's um, uh, a gray area, if you will. And... Um, most um, well-known schools will not grant you day one CPT, right? So USCIS disfavors it, but um, is it not dis- is it disallowed? No, I mean, people do do it. So I-, I would say if you don't really have any option, if your spouse is not on H1B, if your spouse is on H4 with you and you have found no 
other opportunities in the 60-day window you had, then look at Devon CPT by all means. And also look at B2 as a last resort, where you, instead of filing a change of status to H4, file a change of status to B2, park yourself in the change of status pending state, keep looking, and then come back from B2 back to H1B. Those are not really clean options, but uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, if you have school-going children and you cannot really pick up and leave, I would tap into those things. I mean, ideally, I mean, if you don't have, if you're not married and uh, you don't have any children, spouse, you could even wait outside, meaning, you know, once the grace period is over, if you're still not found a job here, you can certainly go back uh, to your home country and you can wait there and you can continue looking here for, for opportunities. And then the new employer can file a new H-1B, which is obviously not subject to the cap and all that, and then do consular process, send it back to you in India or wherever you are. You get your visa stamp. If you have an existing visa, come back in on the existing visa using the new approval. Um, so there are things you can do. Uh, obviously, those are less desirable, right? Because people, even if you don't have dependents, you probably have a car here, you probably have an apartment lease or a house, and, you know, um, so those things will be affected by if you have to leave. And also, once you leave, you don't know how soon you can come back in, uh, depending on whether you have an existing visa or you need to get your visa stamp. All of those things will come into play, but, um, you know, that's another option you can think about if it's applicable to you in your particular situation. So you talk about Dave and CPT being all right. I know some people get pushed to applying for Dave and CPT. Uh, and I hear, or at least I've seen people talk about, hey, if I am on Dave and CPT, I cannot leave the country uh, to go on a vacation because at port of entry, I'm going to get questioned if I don't have an I-20. I am not aware of it. Maybe you can throw some light on it. Number one. And number two is, does that affect the chance for a green card in the future? The fact that you did end up doing day one CPT as an option and you parked yourself in three years, I think, uh, in the country where you could legally stay back. So let me address the uh, sort of the big elephant in the room, the day one CPT thing. Even in day one CPT schools, there are various shades, right? I would select the, the best school out there where you, you continue to, you're actively enrolled in a full-time program of study. Um, you, you know, you're taking coursework um, towards that end and um, you're attending classes, um, you know, remotely, uh, in-person, hybrid, whatever the case may be. The point being, not all schools are the same when it comes to Dave and CPT. And uh, so even there, I would make the choices wisely because if you try to use that um, and you're not really complying with all the requirements of the F1 um, regulations, you will have consequences at some point. So make sure you... If you move to an F1 status, Dave and CPT is F1 status, right? That's student status. 
make sure you're in compliance with all aspects of your F1 status. So if a question comes up, either when you're coming back to H1B or at some point later on, you should have, you know, had no, you know, you should have complied with all aspects of the F1 regulations. So that's why I caution people, not all Devon CPT schools are the same. And so choose them wisely and make sure you are complying with all the requirements uh, of attending classes and maintaining student status. And, you know, we know all the RFEs which come up on uh, people for people who are on Devon CPT. So the issue will not go away. It's going to come back uh, at some point. Um, So use it but um, make the selections carefully of the school, um, you know, uh, that's, that would be my best advice. Like you said, I think it's a, it's a gray area in general. Um, there are a lot of people who, who still believe that it is illegal to do day one CPT. And there are a lot of people who believe that it's okay, you know, as long as you can deal with the consequences. W- what are your thoughts on whether it's legal or not? Well, I don't, I don't think it's illegal. It's not illegal. It's certainly uh, very close to the border there. And um, if USCIS does not like it, they should shut it down. Yeah. They're not shut it down. So given that um, there are some schools which will still allow it, um, take, you know, if you are left with no choices, take advantage of it. But, you know, use your judgment. I mean, not all schools are the same. Um, so we know who the uh, questionable ones are um, and stay away from that. You know, it's it's interesting that you say that, that not all schools are the same. Do you, um, are you saying that that's where the, that's where this came about? Like when USCIS actually did crank down on day one CPTs, we heard about like a year back that USCIS was cranking down on universities that were offering day one CPTs and they were sending, you know, notices to students who were actually on. So is that specific to the university that you're choosing for day one CPT? Um, and like, or is it specific to whether you are doing the right stuff for your F1 in terms of taking the courses and everything? So it starts from the school. There are schools out there which are for-profit schools, which will, which are only interested in getting you in the door and giving you an I-20 authorizing your CPT employment from day one. Um, like if you go to a well-known state school, if you enroll in a master's program, let's say in data analytics, they're not going to authorize curricular practical training from day one. They'll say, uh, complete some courses with us, um, you know, and uh, we will talk about it down the road. So avoid schools which are just really interested in, to put it crudely, your money, right? To And then granting you CPT from day one. There are schools which will, you know, which have legitimate programs and they will uh, enroll you in those programs and they will expect you to comply with all the terms of the program. And also, incidental to that, they will authorize curricular practical training from day one, which some other schools may not. So I would select those over some other school, which is which will say, oh, I don't, we don't care whether you're in Virginia, Washington, D.C., or uh, Massachusetts, our school is in California, or just uh, sign up, and uh, I'm going to issue an I-20, and you can go work anywhere, no questions. Um, So (laughs) if it's too good to be true, it is, right? So so you you know what I'm talking. There's no secret to any of this. Students know what they're getting into. 
make sure out of desperation don't take steps which are you know skirting the law cutting corners it's going to come back and haunt you at some point if you don't do that uh, people will be you know uh, you'll be fine i mean that's that's our advice constantly i mean that's my mantra yeah and another question i had was with regards to o1 right uh, so the visa for outstanding uh, abilities uh, can that be does that need a sponsoring employee uh, employer who does it for you or can you self petition it yourself and if yes how do you justify your extraordinary capabilities no you do need a sponsorship so oven is not really um, a commonly used option um, the standards are quite high most people on h1b with just bachelor's degrees will not qualify for oven so i would not really look at oven as a fallback option for people in these kinds of situation who are facing layoffs and who are unable to um, find other employment so i think we need to be focused in this and stick to finding an h1b within the 60 day grace period looking at h4 as an option if your spouse is on h1b looking at day 1 cpt and b2 as plan b and plan c if all of these fails then go back and stay work from your home country and continue looking for um for employment uh, as as a very last option right so there's really no one size fits all in this um i i would advise um you should consult a lawyer in all these things don't make decisions um which is going to impact um the rest of your stay in this country likely um so speak to a lawyer and um make sure you get the right advice for your situation because people will share all kinds of information on linkedin which is good but it not every situation is applicable to everybody so don't assume that what is spoken is the gospel and um, you know it applies to everybody you really need to consult your particular situation with a lawyer and come to the right um, decision you know uh, that would be my advice and you know don't uh, people assume that you know what they find on the internet is uh, is uh, applies in all situations it may or may not so be be careful about that we just spoke about h1b's primarily and o1s i do want to focus a little bit on students um who are graduating out of their class today right um we all know that we have an opt period which is your optional practical training um and you can work with a company for about 3 years if you're on a stem uh, degree uh on an opt right before you convert into an h1 so in this time of you know where the country is heading into a recession what advice would you give students who are about to take their opt who don't have a job yet i think they have a 90 day grace period if i'm right i mean i think the first advice would be do your best to find one um but otherwise what other options do they have like other than taking an opt and you know starting that clock on that 90 day period opt does open up a lot more doors employers are willing to if you're from a good school and a good program um getting hired on opt um is not that difficult honestly the challenge of course is um you know make sure you find 
employment in the field of study. Don't, um, out of desperation, don't go work for an employer who will not really offer you training in your field of study. And that becomes a critical issue once you move beyond the post-completion OPT to STEM OPT, which is the second, right? You get the initial 12-month OPT after your graduation. And if you're a STEM graduate, you get the, uh, the two-year extension. And some of these requirements get more stringent because of the training plan and all that. My best advice is, you know, you need to find employment training in your field of study. Make sure, um, do, um, yes, I mean, there is 90 days of being without payroll in the first 12 months. Um, so that gives you some time to look for a suitable position. Use that wisely. Network and uh, use your placement uh, programs in your schools effectively. Find something which um, is in your area. A lot of times the mistake I see people make is they get into other areas which are not really in their field of study and that causes complications. So if you can avoid that, um, I think um, uh, compliance uh, becomes uh, more clear and um, it leads to less issues, less questions later on when you're changing status from F1 to H1B. Usually that's where the RFEs come in. So. Stay focused. That's my best advice. Yeah. With the question being with OPTs and F1, can you tell our audience from an immigration standpoint what a cap gap is uh, in an F1 visas uh, program? And when does someone, uh, when is someone eligible for cap gap? And when is someone not eligible for cap gap? So cap cap is uh, mainly uh, when, when you're trying to change status from F1 to H1B. Um, so if you, as long as the H1B gets filed before the current OPT ends, you get the cap cap extension for the remainder of the, the period. So for example, let's say your OPT is ending in June and your H1B gets filed in the month of April, right? Um, so and since the new H1B does not kick in from October 1st, you're allowed a cap cap extension of your work authorization for that period, June to September 30th. That's what cap cap extension is. There are times where you get the, the extension, meaning you're allowed to stay in this country, but not granted work authorization if your OPT has already expired, but you're within the 60 day grace period. So uh, there are lots of nuances to that. Um, so you, you need to talk to your lawyer uh, to make sure, you know, the, the case is handled, the change of status from F1 to H1B is handled in such a way that you get the cap cap extension. So now the reason why I bring that up is H1B filing is, is in a period, is in a window of, um, of 30, 90 days these days, right? So after the lottery is over, if you get selected, then you have a 90 day window to file your H1B. So if your OPT is expiring in that 90-day window. Make sure you tell your lawyers and you tell your employer to file the H-1B before the OPT ends, your EAD ends. That way you get the cap gap extension. So timing is critical. Make sense? I see. And what happens, yeah. and what happens like, you know, you do file for an H-1 in June. You go through the process of approvals or RFEs, you know, things like that. What happens if you get an RFE that you have to respond to does your cap gap extension only extend until September 30th or 
can you stay beyond that until the RFE is approved? So if the FMB is still not approved okay. and October 1st has already come and gone, uh, your case is still pending um, in an RFE, you're allowed to stay here. You don't have to leave. But your work authorization does end mm -hmm. on September 30th. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, I guess another form of visa right now that people are facing problems with in this situation is L1, right? Can we talk about a little bit about the different options that people have who are on L1 visas? They are tied to a company. They come here specifically to work for a company. So what options do they have if they get laid off in these trouble times? So their options are fewer and more limited. Um, so if you are on an L1, you're in a, on an intra-company transfer from a foreign company to a U.S. company, and you're tied to that company. So if you never had an H-1B, you cannot go to an H-1B with an, another employer, especially now that there, there are no H-1B visas available for the current year, right? It's already over. So um, yeah. the unless the spouse has an independent visa, like say you're on L-1 and uh, your spouse is on, a, on an H-1B, uh, independent of you, then you can look at a change of status from L1 to H4. But if you are on L1 and your spouse is on L2 uh, as a dependent and he or she is working on an L2 EAD, you know, L2 statuses, you get work authorization on L2 status. There's nothing you can do, unfortunately. Um, if you never had an H1B before, you have to leave the country. Most employers will either ask you to go back to the country you came from, and they'll probably absorb you back in um, your home country from where you were transferred initially. Some employers have seen or letting go, saying that, look, I, we cannot take you back in, in India or wherever. Sorry, this is the last state of your employment with a uh, U.S. Um, company. You have to return. And, uh, there's really no feasible options in those cases. There's no grace so, period like we have for H1, for L1 visas? There is. There is. It's main, the grace period is mainly to wrap things up and leave, but it's not okay. really to port your employment to another company because if, like I said, if that option, if you never had an H1B, where do you go? You cannot go from L1 to something else. Yeah. Maybe, uh, um, Karthik, in those cases, the question you had raised on O1, Maybe an option to look into. I would certainly uh, consult a lawyer to see if there is a way to convert to an, uh, to an O1. Um, if you meet those requirements and an employer is willing to sponsor you for an O1, that may be one particular case where I, I would um, evaluate the feasibility of an O1. If, you know, if, if, when all, all bats are off, you try to get as creative as you can to find solutions. So that's where it's important to speak to a good lawyer to who can understand where you're coming from and what your situation is and see if they can find solutions. So I would not, you know, assume that you don't really have any options. Go talk to somebody. Maybe somebody can come up, craft up, craft a creative solution for you. What are your thoughts on capping sim H1? I know the, uh, the cap, H1B cap, uh, for the financial year is over. I do understand that a lot of not-for-profits or NGOs in the country can file for your H-1B without you being subject to a cap. Can you talk about that? And is that a safer option for people to fall back onto 
if they can find a role with a not-for-profit. It's easier said than done. Yes, there are CapEx and employers. Uh, usually institutions of higher education, research organizations which are associated with institutions of higher education, hospitals, you know, stuff like that. But as a practical matter, though, to find if you're having trouble finding employment in your space, find if you are going to add another layer of complication to that and try to find employment with a cap-exempt employer, it becomes infinitely more difficult. So I would really not look, put that as an option out there. But yes, I mean, if for some reason or somehow you're able to find an employer who is um, cap-exempt and they're um, and you land a job with them, by all means, yes, you can certainly file an H-1B through them. This is more um, for, you know, maybe even people in L1 kind of situations, because then you're not subject to the lottery and all that. It is an option, but I don't see that come come up that very often as a solution for people. Uh, I think it's a good, I mean, I have had friends who have, you know, used that option a little bit, but like you said, I think... H1 is a safer option, the proper H1 with the proper employer. This is kind of like, like you said, a plan B, C or D. I do want to touch a little bit on the topic of visa stamping, right? Um, the situation in India, at least from where I am, is that the stamping um, dates are unavailable and it's all backed up. They're being released in the dates are being released in chunks now and then. It's very hard to get one, especially because there's so many people contending for the slot to go home, visit families. Um, what are your thoughts on how you think that will get streamlined or when you think that will get streamlined? Um, the backup started during COVID. I think a little bit during the beginning of the year, it was starting to get better, but now it's getting uh, backed up again, especially because of all of these changes that are happening. So what are your thoughts on when you think this will get streamlined? And do you think this is also a big part of the recession that's happening in the country? So it's a perfect storm of several you know, things which happen, um, which is causing all these visa issues in India, um, terrible backlogs in India. COVID-19, um, obviously um, the, the pandemic uh, has made things worse. Um, the, um, the staffing has been an issue at consulates in India. And um, I was told a few months back that they were operating at 30% staffing. So where they need 10 people, they have three people doing um, processing these visas. So US, the State Department is being, making a concerted effort to improve staffing, um, especially in India, given the enormous backlogs there. Um, they, had reported that they would be back to 100% staffing by summer of 2023. Um, that was the May of 2023 is the, the date they're given. And later on, just a few weeks back, the State Department said, that, well, I don't think it's going to be May, probably be August of 2023. So I think my, my gut feeling is they're doing their best. They're moving resources from other posts to India. They're moving people from State Department in the U.S. back to India to improve visa processing, especially especially H's and L's. They're also assigning additional visa slots for H's and L's. Initially this year, they had said they are going to release 100,000 visa slots for H's and L's. That's the what you were alluding to, where there was some easing up of the visa dates. Um, now we are finding it's uh, backed up again. This all of this will take some time. And my gut feeling is it's going to be 
in the next year before things are really back to normal. From what we are hearing in our conversation with the State Department, they are prioritizing H's and L's over, say, B1 and B2. That's not a priority for them. So things will ease up. There's really no sort of definite date to say, okay, by summer of next year, you, you will have no age. I think for the foreseeable future, in my view, through probably to end of next year, you'll continue to have backlogs in India. So the State Department is urging people to look at third country processing. Backlogs are not uniform. There are countries where visa appointments are readily available, especially for Indians. Um, if you see that visas are available, uh, appointments are available in a different country where you don't need a visa to get into that country, by all means, look into that option. Contact the consulate, the post in that country, ask them, you know, hey, I'm an Indian national. I would like to get my visa stamp. Um, you know, would you be willing to look into it? They will respond. So take advantage of those options. Like in the U.S., we would send people to Jamaica all the time because Jamaica used to, this is pre-COVID, appointments were readily available, especially if people had their initial stamping done from India once, we would have no problem sending people to Jamaica Indians would not need a visa to get into Jamaica. So they would fly in, get their visa issued and come back in. Things had become more difficult through COVID. TCN processing, third country national processing had gone down because they were more focused on helping citizens of their country. The U.S. post in that country is meant for their citizens. So now State Department themselves are encouraging people to go to third countries. So look into that. That's something which is uh, often uh, people don't, um, evaluate that option. Um, they, they assume that they have to go to India. You might be able to go to a third country, get it done, and then fly to India. If you can avoid travel to India, if uh, visa stamping is a limitation issue, uh, you know, if uh, you cannot get any other appointment anywhere else. But um, that's what we are seeing, and that's the best advice we have at this time. Just uh, watch it. Things will improve, but it's going to be a slow process. I think this interview has been a lot about visas and how we can, how we can, you know, combat the situation that's going on right now. I do want to change directions a little bit. You're an experienced immigration lawyer in the country. I'm sure you're seeing an uptick in the number of calls that you're receiving especially during this time when people are getting laid off. What is your advice to other immigration attorneys out there? Um, who are receiving the same call volumes. Um, you know, like you said, each case is different. Each case needs its own set of eyes to look at. Um, how do you think people can manage, talk to everyone? What's the best way to, to do that? I would certainly not offer advice to other immigration lawyers, but certainly I can tell you, and I speak to a lot of my colleagues all the time. So yes, you're absolutely right, Nandini. I mean, a lot of calls, a lot of questions. From my side, I do my best to keep people informed. LinkedIn is a, a good medium for me to get the message out. And we also do a lot of Google posts. Um, you know, we post on, if you look at GoCrail Law Firm or GoCrail PO, look us up on Google. We do post uh, consistently useful information, which uh, people can, um, you know, take away something of value. From, from that. Just uh, all we can do from our end as practitioners is share knowledge, share information. Hope it helps people um, like I'm doing on this call, um, you know, just uh, sharing my time and sharing my expertise in the hope that it helps people. And for people also affected by these layoffs, um, don't uh, feel uh, that you're isolated. Take advantage of the, the resources out there, you know, things 
good things always come out. And, you know, while uh, it may seem that um, things are, are really bad at the moment, just uh, hang in there. You'll see an improvement. All I can say is uh, keep fighting. Best wishes. That's my advice. Yeah, I think social media, like you said, is a powerful tool, not only to get the message out, but also to put yourself out there for employment. Um, if you are laid off, yes. getting laid off is not, at least in this age, is not a reflection of performance. I think it's more of a reflection of right. the budget and the economy as it is today. And I'm not, I'm not really sure that all companies have closed their doors to hiring yet. There are opportunities out there in the right fields. So yeah, I think uh, reaching out on LinkedIn, I've seen a lot of people get positive results by doing that. So like you said, yeah. yeah, I think that's a good yeah. option. Don't don't be shy. Don't be shy. Yeah, it's not you. It's the economy. Yeah. I've, I've learned a lot in the 45 minutes that you've spoken about, like a lot of the options. I think our viewers will find this super informative because a lot of my friends have asked me these questions thinking that I was in a place to give them advice. But uh, as you know, the immigration law in the U.S. is an ocean and not everyone knows all the answers. So when an immigration lawyer gives their feedback, uh, it's, it's, it's going to be invaluable overall. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to reach a lot of people. And I think in general, all of these are pretty much burning questions. I felt like, you know, Karthik and I actually didn't really prepare for this interview. We just went question, 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 because we've been hearing all of this on LinkedIn um, and we figured we'll just ask all of those. So um, thank you so much for the great answers. I think I learned a lot of new things as well, especially with the cap cap extension, how long you can stay on that and things like that. So this was a very informative session for me as well. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Nandini. Thank you, Karthik, for the opportunity. And um, it was wonderful uh, chatting with you guys. And uh, I always enjoy doing these things. Uh, Good luck. Uh, keep doing it. It's, it's a wonderful thing that you're, what you're doing. We hope you enjoyed the content and it was informative to you as much as it was for us. And for further videos and content, do follow us on our YouTube page and our LinkedIn page for frequent announcements that we make regarding uh, updates and content addition we do to the IT project. We really appreciate all of your feedback. Click on the subscribe button below to get more updates from our YouTube page.